Riding the Trans-America Trail across the United States can be a challenge in itself. But add to that challenge a motorcycle that is so unsuited to the task that it would almost be considered insane to tackle. At this point, Brendan O'Leary walks into the picture. He's an engineer by trade with a tremendous passion for working on small motorcycles, Honda motorcycles. Brendan decides he's going to buy a brand new Honda Trail 125 and ride the tat. And there begins the story. Brendan putting his plan into action, starting with logistics and preparation, and then setting out on his first, perhaps absurd, motorcycle adventure. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. What's greater than the great outdoors? The great outdoors plus a Honda. A Honda gets you where you want to go. The four-stroke 55 cubic centimeter overhead valve engine gives zip and power. Yet at 45 miles per hour, it's like riding on silk. A Honda doesn't gulp gas, just zips it. 225 miles to a gallon. Honda, world's biggest seller. Best product is the maker of the cycle pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Dragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. So my name is Brendan O'Leary. I live in Helena, Montana. I'm currently engineer um, in the aerospace industry, and uh, that's what I went to school for. That's what I trained as, and I've been kind of in this this industry for uh, six years now. Brendan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me. You are um, an engineer. What brings you to motorcycling? Yeah, so motorcycling wasn't really in my life, actually, at all. My family never had motorcycles, not a whole lot of that. And frankly, not even uh, cars to a good degree. You know, my my dad in particular, he he was more into woodworking and a lot of that craftsmanship, things like that. So, I, you know, upbringing, I had a lot of time using tools and things like that. I went to school and at college, um, started taking engineering classes to finish up school, got into, um, you know, full-time work. And during that time in college, I had actually gotten a mini bike and this was an old, uh, American made, you know, rigid frame with a, essentially a water pump motor on it. And I kind of fixed that up and had my fun with it, but it was, you know, it was kind of limited in what you could do with little, you know, five inch wheels. And so, um, it wasn't until I was in, uh, you know, my sort of engineering career where I had a friend who asked me if I could help him design a little intake manifold for a new carburetor on his uh, a mini bike he had for his children. And I remember helping him design it. And I was like, oh, man, this would be kind of fun again. Uh, well, again, meaning, you know, trying to get back into something, just the accessibility of motorcycles versus cars. And a lot of that is just, you know, kind of based off of size. So I hopped on, you know, one of the online you know, marketplaces. And I saw a 1982 Honda PA52, which is known in the US as the Honda Hobbit. It's a little uh, CVT, kind of variable transmission, 50cc, two-stroke moped. The parts were in a bunch of boxes and the frame was held together with string. And so I I went up buying it for, you know, pretty measly amount. And I started fixing it back up and I found a lot of the old documentation online, the original service manuals from the 80s. And I was loving it. And, you know, the first time I kicked it over and it started, you know, my fate was kind of sealed going down that route. So that was a moped, of course, and that was kind of limited. But at the time I lived in Charleston and I was driving up one of the interstate and that's Charleston, South Carolina. I was driving up the interstate and I see this tow truck with a little Nissan Frontier on the back. 
But in the front of it, I see a little Honda Z50. And I didn't know that at the time, but I could recognize this was one of those Honda bikes. So I was kind of interested, like, why is this old? It had, you know, moss growing on it, essentially. It was one of these barn finds, if you will. So I called the number on the side of the tow truck. And I was like, I don't want to get this guy in trouble in case he's maybe not supposed to be hauling this. So the, the call connected and, and someone picked up and I said, hey, I'm, I'm driving next to a truck on a 26 right now. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's me. And so I said, hey, you have a little mini bike on the back. I was kind of curious about it. And he said, oh, well, this guy I was getting this truck from, he was going to throw it out. And so I said, hey, I'll, I'll take that. So he threw it on his truck. And so then I asked him kind of, you know, playing it forward a little bit. I was like, well, would you be willing to sell it? And he was like, well, tell you what, meet me at the uh, meet me at the gas station this next exit. So I did. And we went up there and I took a look at it. And um, and he said, yeah, it's yours. And I was like, you know, can I get you fuel or something? And he was like, oh, you know, don't be silly. And you so mean he's going to give it to you. Yeah. So he gave it to me. And it was a 1974 Honda Z50A. It's the classic Honda Mini Trail um, that you know is essentially still sold today as the CRF50F, but um, has gone through kind of a number of design changes. So when I got that thing home, it it wasn't together for much longer. I took it the whole thing apart. I started going really crazy into it. Is this like an, an engineering project for you? I mean, is is that where it comes from? It's just an interest in taking something apart, getting it running again. Yeah. So I've always loved taking things apart. I had this like little rubber made under my bed. It was called my inventing box as a kid. And it had a bunch of random things in it, but I would always find something to put together and all that. And so that, that sort of naturally would lead me into engineering. Cause frankly, at the time I wasn't too motivated by school, but once I started taking, you know, my first physics class and I could see that these really abstract frankly, obnoxious, you know, math equations could be related back to things you take apart and put together. I was, I was hooked pretty hard. And so a lot throughout my life, I've, I've loved taking different, um, projects on and things like that. So when I could sort of connect with the mechanical side of taking a motorcycle apart, putting it back together again, um, and have really like a, a full scope. Cause you know, when I would work on a car, it would be very limited on a, a certain system, say, or subsystem. But on a motorcycle, when I was restoring these, I was touching everything. I was blasting the frame down to repaint it. I was, you know, replacing crank bearings. I was uh, zinc plating. I learned how to zinc plate the parts and just being like full scope on it really, really kind of sucked me in pretty good. Is that good. because of the size? Like, because you were talking about the size of the car. Is that just because of the accessibility? I mean, you can put this bike on a bench and work on it. Yep. It was, it was largely the accessibility and it's not yeah. that, you know, I, I didn't have any means to access, um, any part of a car. I just, something about it being so accessible. Yeah. Is, is a really good word. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed. And so, yeah, so I went up fixing up that Z 50 and then I went even deeper. I went up buying a CT 70, another barn fine deal. Uh, it had a locked up transmission. I fixed that up. I bought some trail nineties and um, fix those up. And I was actually for a bit kind of known locally in Charleston. And I worked on a couple uh, folks, CT nineties there, you know, the ones that they got from their dad that hadn't ran in 20 years. And mm -hmm. I'd give them a once over and get them running back on the road. So kind of a long intro there, but that's, that's really how I sort of, um, you know, entered into the motorcycling world. So I guess the natural thing to do after this is you must get into riding them when you're fixing them up. And then you're thinking, what else can I do? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, it got kind of old going around the neighborhood. So yeah. I would, I bought one of those carriers on the back of my truck. I'd take them out camping and, uh, you know, had a wreck or two and he <laughs> started learning pretty quick there, but <laughs> wait, yeah, wait, I got wait, really, wait, had a wreck or two. You're talking, you wiped out the bike. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I took it to this one national forest riding area in South Carolina. And, um, I decided to, you know, take out my phone and film one part while I was riding on sand. Um, so I learned that lesson the hard way and I went down pretty hard. <laughs> uh, so. so you take them camping, you, you're playing around with them. How do you come up with the idea to, to ride on the Trans America Trail? So in part of my looking up, you know, a uh, little bit what I mentioned earlier about consuming all forms of media related to motorcycling, I was on YouTube and I'd watch a couple of videos of people who have modified these old Hondas. And then I came across uh, C90 Adventures um, and that's Ed March, um, if you're familiar. So we had him on the show many years ago, actually. I, I know he's, he's just oh, really? finished up. He's just sort of stopped doing it from what I understand. Somebody was telling me, but I think we had him on 
oh, could have been like seven years ago or something like that. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I had seen his videos and so I started watching and, and a lot of his, um, his personality really, I think, uh, kind of, I identify with, I connect with. And so, um, I'd watched his videos and he had one where he was leading or uh, guiding a few folks. Um, I'm forgetting what the trip was now. It was through Southeast Asia, I believe. I forget. But he had made a comment in that video and he's like, and I'm largely paraphrasing. He said, you know, if you think you can't do it or you don't have enough experience to do it, um, you're wrong or something like that. And he had said there was another uh, guy who had went with him who essentially got his license not long before he left for the trip. And he was there doing it with a guide. So that was really inspiring. And then when I saw his trip um, with his, I believe, uh, partner, Rachel, at the time, they left on the Transamerica Trail and they had their share of just craziness and stories happen. And just seeing how, you know, I could see my home country across, you know, a number of landscapes really sat with me well. And um, this was maybe three years ago at this point. And I looked at it and I was, and I, I pretty much thought at that time is I'm going to do it. I, I want to do this. You just had mentioned something about not having your license. So at this point, you didn't, you didn't have your motorcycle license to, you didn't have a license to ride the, the bike on the road. No. So, um, so I took the trip on a Honda trail 125, um, which is the, you know, the new release of the, you know, CT 90 CT 110 from back in the day when I had bought that bike. Um, I kind of knew that this was the bike that I wanted to take on the tat. Uh, there was kind of a number of reasons for that, even though, the CT90, I knew it inside and out. The reliability, you know, carbureted, six volt system, uh, kicks, all that was kind of left me a little bit worried because I did know them so well. Um, but yeah, I didn't have my license at the time. So quickly in South Carolina, uh, this was about September of last year, 2021, I got my permit. And so I could do, of course, pretty limited riding at that time. Um, but not long after I moved from South Carolina to Montana, and so, um, and it, <laughs> that time of year in Montana, nobody's really riding motorcycles. Um, it's, it's fairly cold here. So hmm. I had to, uh, pretty much put that on the, the back burner. And at that time, because I wasn't living on the East coast anymore, I got to thinking, all right, maybe the Transamerica trail is, is put off for a little bit longer because now I'm going to have to ship the bike or find some way to get it back to the East coast so I can do it properly. And just a little long and works really busy. Um, but in March of 2022, I, I was like, you know what, this is, it's really just another logistics challenge to do this trip like this. And that's kind of what the whole trip is anyway. So I'm, I'm not going to let that stop me. And I know it's a sentiment that's been shared on the show before. And it's, it's one I definitely took to heart is I think uh, I could definitely get into something. Oh, well, I can do it. Th I can do it then. I can do it later. There'll be a better time to all that thinking. And yeah. I had to really stop myself in my, in the tracks there and say like, no, that, no, that, that'll lead to maybe never doing it. So in March I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. I talked to my manager at work and I kind of let her know what my timeline was like. Um, and then I had to start going after my license, which in Montana is from what I had heard is, is the road test is notoriously difficult to pass. And so I started going, um, going and getting all the prep done. I took one of the uh, motorcycle safety courses and uh, yeah, so I got my license just about two months before I left on the trip. So, so back up though, when I asked you about, so why the tat though, like how, why did you decide that this is the adventure you want to do? Like, what is it about that particular trail that makes you think, okay, I want to take one of these small bikes and conquer that? And there's a number of things. One, I think the views and the scenery and everything of the original, a lot of the videos I watched, being able to see kind of how that will progress as you cross the country. And also because a lot of the states that the TAT runs through, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in, um, you know, essentially Colorado and Utah. I'd only really connected like at the uh, airports there before I had stepped out of those airports. Um, Idaho, I'd spent a little bit of time in as a kid. Um, when we would take some family trips to Montana, we would zip over to Idaho. And then Oregon, I had only recently started going to Oregon to, for some work commitments to Portland, uh, but that was about it. So when I saw that I could really spend a lot of time and learn these states pretty intimately, I thought that was kind of the best way because a lot of the contrast would be doing some of the BDR routes uh, around here. But that would be, uh, you know, a little bit like the Tata, kind of build your own adventure, 
connecting between the two. Montana didn't have its own BDR. And um, I, th- I thought doing the tat where it's sort of prepackaged and it'll take you across just really appealed to me. You wanted the big adventure. You want to do the whole thing right across the country. Yeah, yeah pretty much. With the TAT, there, there's a lot of off-road sections. And I, and I think what they recommend for the TAT is that you have a dual sport bike and you rode this CT125. Now, uh, and I'll get to that, but I want to ask you about the bike choice to begin with, because you have these old bikes. You already said why you don't want to ride them. You, you realize that they're somewhat unreliable, six volt systems, etc. I get that. But why buy a brand new CT125? Why not go up to a, a dual sport, like a, you know, a, a 250, 300, 650 dual sport bike? Yeah. So I had pretty much known going forward that I was going to be doing the TAT alone. There's kind of a lot of reasons for that. Um, One, I think not a lot of my friends are into motorcycles at all. So my immediate friend group would be kind of difficult. And then riding with um, somebody else who was looking to do it, just find the timing that would work between the two um, was really difficult. I talked with one guy about maybe doing it together, but our schedules just weren't going to line up. And so I didn't want to go for a huge bike. And again, a huge is extremely relative here, <laughs> but I didn't want to go with a larger bike because I was you know, worried about dropping it and things like that, which ended up happening um, when the bike fell on me and I got pinned under it. But when I thought about taking something big, uh, I was worried about that. I was really familiar with the Honda horizontal um, architecture, the frame. I had not been into the 125 motor, but it, it's fairly comparable to the uh, you know, 50s, 70s, and 90s. So I felt pretty good with that. It's a fairly simple bike overall. Um, and it would also, the, the the cost, you know, the kind of barrier to entry on a lot of this is, you know, do I pay, you know, the CT9, or excuse me, 125 is MSRP for 3,900. Of course, out the door, it's more around 5,000. And a lot of other bikes are used bikes. You know, I might be getting something with questionable history. And so um, kind of a lot of signs pointed me to getting something small. Turns out, about the smallest you can possibly buy. Um, and I like the the novelty and the idea of, of doing this on, on something. So, you know, kind of, kind of ridiculous. Yeah. You're aware then obvious, obviously when you're planning this, that, that this bike adds a challenge to it just by the, its size. Yep. Yeah. And, and, uh, I knew that there was going to be definitely some challenges with it, but I was, I was really looking for that. I was, I was, <laughs> really looking to take on something difficult, both with the tat, doing it on the most uncomfortable motorcycle seat that I have, I've heard has been designed. Um, <laughs> and I, I really wanted to really, you know, kind of push myself and, and do this, do this right in, in my, in my, uh, what I considered is right for me. So it's a pretty lightweight bike, um, 260, something like that, 119, uh, um, kilos somewhere around there, right? Stock. Yeah, just about. Yeah, without yeah. any gear, of course. Yeah. So, um, when you get your gear on it, what do you, what do you think you weigh with the gear without you? Without me, so I'm thinking I was probably just around the 300 mark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 40 pounds of gear. I think again, give or take. I think that's about right. For packing up this bike, you said only about 40 pounds of gear. It doesn't sound like very much. Sounds like sounds like you packed well. What did you use for packs? Uh, so I had a t- little tank bag that, of course, doesn't go on the tank. It goes on the down tube of the 125. That was a six liter um, Givy bag. I had a rack in the front, which I actually just used for uh, spare fuel. And on the back, I had a little uh, Givy, I think it was a 16 liter pannier bag. And it was on a side rack that I made from a uh, mending plate from Ace Hardware uh, that I mounted and painted myself and just put it on there. And then on the back, I used an old field and stream dry bag that I actually used when I was in the Boy Scouts on a 50 mile canoe trip. Um, and then I had another Givy bag that was, I believe 30 liters, um, on there as well. And then, you know, just kind of kept it all locked down with some, some rock straps. They kind of, uh, um, kind of mixed between a, a cinch strap and bungee cord. Uh, and that was pretty much it. You're uh, for accommodations. You're camping the whole time. I'm doing a mix. So I ended up doing like nine nights camping and six nights, uh, like in motels. Uh, and some days like in Colorado and Utah, I would end the day and I would just be 
I mean, my gear was soaked with sweat. I would just be so shot. And sometimes I would get into town or into an area just too late. I just kept wanting to put miles on that. The idea of, you know, getting camp set up, I was just, I was just not feeling it. So that's when I would choose to do a motel. What was your plan then? So sort of overall, I know you're going to ride the tat, but a little more detailed. Sure. So my parents live in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that was kind of a natural starting point for me because the uh, the TAT begins in parts of Western North Carolina. So that was my original plan. Start from there and head on out. Pretty quickly, um, I was kind of finding out that that was going to be difficult to do because I started looking into the shipping quotes to get my bike down there. And I was getting quotes that could be a maximum of two months time to get it down there. So when I thought about that, I was like, all right, so that's me not practicing with the bike. That's me not kidding the bike and making sure everything's good for that entire time. And then it's also me being without my bike for the Montana summer, which again, is the only time you can ride it. So mm-hmm. I kind of started thinking and I was like, you know what, I, I might have to humble this down a little bit. I also thought about driving to North Carolina, but that was going to be a lot of time on the road. Um, I had just done that recently when I moved to Montana, I had driven that 2,400 miles in 48 hours with a friend of mine. And, and I was just, yeah, it's going to take a long time and I don't want to be like road worn before I even start. So what I decided to do is how close could I essentially tag up with the tat to Montana where I could drive it. And part of me also wasn't too upset about cutting that section out because a lot of that middle section is just on pavement for days, just going through like Oklahoma and that whole section, essentially before you meet middle Colorado. And that would just be a lot of time. So I wasn't too bad about, um, you know, too upset about missing that. So my plan was then to, I would rent a U-Haul from Bozeman, Montana. Uh, That's where my family is in Montana. Then I would load the bike into the back of the U-Haul. I would drive down to Denver. I would offload the bike from the U-Haul in Denver And then I planned my own little sort of connector to connect with the nearest kind of intersecting route on the TAT. And then that's where I would start the TAT because I definitely wanted to hit all the mountain passes in Colorado. You've got a brand new Honda CT125. You've got all your gear going. What do you think are the the big, like at this point, this is before you leave on the trip, what do you think are your biggest challenges that you're going to have to deal with? So I I was really worried about having a crash and mechanical problems with the bike. That was my biggest thing. I I went through my toolkit a lot. And actually I I went on one shakedown trip before the the TAT, uh, loaded it up like I was leaving for the TAT. Uh, Went out to a um, part of the national forest near here uh, and I got a flat. And I said, okay, no problem. You know, I, and I, in my garage, I would, I took my tire, my rear tire on and off probably six, 16 times took wow. the, and I should say the rear wheel. I mean, I practice and practice. It was almost like I could hit a stopwatch and go. I, I didn't want actually, I, and I should probably summarize flat tires was number one because on this little shakedown trip, I got a, I got a flat, went to go take care of it. And I forgot to pack my air pump Ooh. and I was, yeah, <laughs> I was dead in the water then. So I had a friend come and pick me up. So that was a lesson learned the hard way, but I definitely did not forget was that a lesson learned to take your pump with you or to have a backup? Actually, both. Oh, right. <laughs> so definitely have your air pump. I got one of the little uh, small powered air compressors. And then I also kept a hand pump with me as well. So I had right. I had both means to inflate. And that's the point of the shakedown trip, right? Yep, exactly. So, um, So those were my biggest fears. You know, I felt like I was really well prepared because when it came to route planning, and all of that, I got, I think, really quite good at it. And actually, some guys I wound up riding a bit of the trip with, um, I would I would kind of take charge of that. So I was really good with the route planning. My mechanical aptitude, I think, is pretty strong. And I actually had to use that when I had to take my work on my clutch in Utah. Um, my, you know, I've been a, you know, Boy Scout my whole life camping. So I knew the camping side. I wasn't worried about that. But the the biggest ones were if I had some mechanical problem that I just, I couldn't figure out. So how does it start out? Does it start out fairly smooth? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and the U-Haul ride, that was all fine. That was good. Then I hit the road and I'm maybe about uh, two hours into riding. I stopped for lunch at this little town in uh, Colorado and I start going down the road and I pull off in one section. I start taking a video because 
Colorado started showing itself and it was just, you know, beautiful and gorgeous. And I panned down, I filmed a bike and then I noticed on my back wheel, my axle nut is off the wheel and the adjuster plate is oh, off. No. So this is the, the wheel that you've had off 16 times? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So I was now essentially, my axle was free to move at its own will. Um, somewhere along the way, I just had forgot because I tightened my chain up in Denver just to make, you know, I did my final kind of checks before I hit the road. And I'm thinking that when I loosened it up, I just was too excited about getting on the road. And I just, I said, oh, okay, that's, that's good. And, th- and I left. And so, yeah, so my axle nut had fallen off. So what do you do with that? So I started looking at the photos I took a little bit while back and I couldn't remember exactly how far along it was, but it was somewhat recent. And the axle nut is on the bike in those photos. I can kind of zoom in and I can see it. So I go on the other side, I kick the axle in, I get my toolkit out and I get a zip tie, you know, thinking that's going to do anything. But I just, I put it on the axle threads. So I hop on the bike, get on the road. And this is luckily a fairly infrequently traveled road. So I start going down and not even two minutes of riding or so, I see a slight something on the road. And so I kind of pull around and I pull over and it's the adjuster plate for the side. And so, oh, so you're, sorry, you're, you're going back. take a quick break. I've got two things I want to tell you about, but stick around. We've got a lot more fun coming up with Brendan. You know, one of the things that we as riders have to be very careful about is fatigue while riding. And fatigue can come from many sources. It could come from cold, noise, or just time in the saddle. Now we can dress warm, we can keep ourselves dry, we can set our windscreen height to make sure we have proper airflow over the helmet to make sure you're not getting vibration or rattling. You can take regular breaks. But another area of fatigue that that I find is the right hand, wrist, and forearm. And most people will find this if you ride any sort of distance at all. And I'm not talking super long distances either. Anytime you're you're on a long stretch. Because When you're on that long stretch, you're holding that throttle in the one position, obviously, to keep your bike going at the same speed. So you just sit there with your arm frozen, your wrist frozen, your hand frozen, unable to take a break with it. Of course, you can pull over to take a break, but another way to do it, a solution, is called the Atlas Throttle Lock. The Atlas Throttle Lock was invented by Heidi and David Winters. While they were doing their own round-the-world trip, David broke his wrist and got very frustrated um, trying to nurse this and, and ride using the throttle locks that he could find. After the trip, he came home and he thought he's going to design the best throttle lock ever, just for himself at this point. But when they were done, the Atlas Throttle Lock, they could see it was, it was a tool that every rider could benefit from. And then, of course, the thought, well, why don't we go into business and make this? And then the Atlas Throttle Lock was born. And it's a stunning piece of engineering and manufacturing. It looks great and works even better. It's got two buttons on it and they offer a positive, firm feedback, which means that when you touch it with your thumb, you don't have to look at it. You don't have to fiddle around with it. You know exactly what you're doing. These these buttons give you the tactile feel back on your thumb. It's very, very well laid out and it's dead simple to use. Actually, it's dead simple to install as well. There's only one bolt that you do up to install this thing. It is very, very simple to do. And one of the huge advantages of that is that you can swap it from one bike to another. So you don't have to leave it on a bike if you're selling it or if you have a couple of bikes, you ride one for a month or something and then you switch back. It's great for that. The Atlas Throttle Lock has literally changed the way I ride. Have a look. I think you're going to find it's one of the best accessories you add to your motorcycle. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Um, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. It's all about control and comfort. Your foot pegs I'm talking about. And riding a a motorcycle without purpose designed foot pegs is kind of like hiking up a mountain with a big backpack on with running shoes. I mean, the novice may not understand all the nuances of the difference, but they'll certainly feel the difference when they put the boots on, as you will with the foot pegs on your motorcycle. The additional power and steering that you gain from a wider, well-designed foot peg, the additional stability and the, and the confidence-inspiring connection that you create between the boot and the foot peg because of the foot peg, because of a properly well-designed foot peg. 
even the best riders in the world need quality gear to get the most from the ride. IMS Products makes a full line of motorcycle foot pegs that are designed specifically for us adventure riders. And what goes into these foot pegs is incredible. From the staggered tooth design to the watershed design, these are things that make the foot pegs specifically designed for us. And IMS, when they, when they build something like this, they use all the experience they've gained over 45 years in business. They started way back in 1976. All the pegs are made from cast-certified stainless steel. They're all built in the USA, and they're all warranted for life. I don't know how you could ask for more. IMS built these pegs for the way we ride, and they did it because they're riders just like us. It's always been owned by riders and racers, so they have access you know, to top riders, top racers, to help refine these products when they're building, when they're designing them for us. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. And so, oh, so you're, sorry, you're, you're going back to look for your parts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Cause I, I was at this point and you know, some of these places can be so remote. I, if I keep going forward, I might not find a place that has this. I don't have any service. I can't look up hardware stores and stuff. So I start backtracking back to where I had lunch. And so I find this part. So the adjuster plate was kind of the biggest part I wanted because I could find another nut. Of course, that's mm-hmm. fairly standard hardware. So I find the axle or the adjuster plate. And so I get up back on the bike and I start going down the road. I go all the way back to where I was, where I had lunch and I didn't find the nut. And that's already pretty dangerous riding. You know, I got to be looking ahead, but I also got to, you know, keep my peripherals open. And so I didn't find it. So when I went back to that place, uh, this little town, they had a, just kind of a general store there. So I went in there looking if they had anything that could work for me and they had nothing. But then I saw a radiator hose repair kit and it had these little hose clamps in it. So I bought the the kit and I, I kind of left her, um, the one working with the rest of the parts in case they could be used elsewhere. And I put the smallest hose clamp on those threads in there and that, that locked the axle and that pretty, you know, pretty good in place. Um, and then I used their Wi-Fi, and there was a hardware store along my route. And so I called the hardware store and I asked them if they had any 12 millimeter nuts. Cause I forgot the pitch thread size. And they were like, Oh yeah, actually we have them. We have them in uh, a number of uh, pitches. And so I said, sweet. I'll be there. So I hit the road. I drive 30 some odd miles or so to get there, walk in there, grab, grab all three um, sizes. I have one of the associates come out with me, find the right one that works. And at that point, that's when I bought the self-locking as well as a lock washer under it. Um, and I bought, I bought a spare, which was, <laughs> which was a lesson learned and uh, threw it on and, you know, made sure my chain and alignment was all good. And, uh, and so I solved that problem. How far into the trip were, are you at this point? So this is, of course, still day one, and this is maybe oh. 100 miles. Yeah, this was the first day I did. I think it was just about 200 miles. And so I'm halfway between the first day. I mean, this is right after lunch. And I already had a little bit of a late morning because or late start because that morning I was still in Wyoming uh, driving to Denver. So it was already a long day at this point. And then I have this axle nut fall off. Now, you um, you end up getting into to Colorado and and having a problem on, on one of the passes is that where things started to get tough is in Colorado things were definitely hard in Colorado physically hard um i had kind of two main issues with the passes on day 2 right after salida colorado i started approaching marshall pass and i knew marshall pass was uh really rocky getting up but it wasn't too steep and i don't remember hearing a lot of stories about it being bad but on my way up this pretty pretty early morning it was kind of chilly and uh, I'm going up the the kind of rock garden as I, I see a lot of uh, tat riders call it um, nothing too bad you know on my 125 I'm going kind of slow up it but a side by side starts coming down and it was pretty tight and the side by side wasn't yielding so I got off to the side on the inside of the of the trail here and I'm, I'm looking to the left to kind of just make sure I'm cleared for the side by side. But what I don't notice is there's this big rock kind of outcropping that's coming into the trail a little bit. And so while I'm looking to the left on my right, I start going forward. Again, I'm going slow, but one of the rocks that was popping out went, you know, met up with my foot peg and my foot was between it. And uh, 
and that, so it just smashed my foot and, you know, I felt the pain just shoot, you know, everywhere. And I, I rode up only a little bit more and I just wound up falling sideways into the, you know, kind of incline on the hill there. And I kind of used my foot, I hit my kill switch and I, I slide up on the, on the incline a little bit. And I'm just like, oh, did I just like break? Did I just turn my foot to mashed potatoes? And I was like, what happened? So uh, I take my boot off and I'm kind of looking at my, my foot and I'm, I, it looks fine at first. It's just, you know, it's, it's red with pain. It just hurts like all. And, um, and I'm, so I'm sitting, so I want to wait in there for about an hour, just kind of, you know, understanding what I'm doing and you know, I get on my in reach and I, I send a message out. Um, cause I, I knew a lot of my friends and family were kind of tracking me at least definitely in the beginning. And I said, Hey, little issue, but I'm, I'm fine. And so I kind of wait for the pain to subside a little bit. Then I finish Marshall Pass. I go down Marshall Pass, get into Sargent's Colorado, and I get some ice on my foot. It's still hurting pretty hard. I can walk, but it's it's still pretty painful. And so, um, yeah, so that was my first pass. And I've already, you know, got an injury that's really limiting my my movement a good bit. But so, yeah, that was the start of the passes. What do you have for gear? What, like, what are you wearing for boots? Yeah, so... I was wearing some pretty budget uh, gear. I had a built storm. It's kind of a waterproof um, system, the pants and jacket. I have a, uh, a bell, I forget the name. It's a modular helmet. And then for boots, I'm actually just wearing um, like leather uh, kind of hiking boots. I did not have the, you know, the proper kind of riding boots. Mm. And so I think that was definitely, that's, that'll be the last time I, I wear something like that because I met some riders at the top of the hill and they were like, yeah, man, you got to get some riding boots. Yeah. Lesson learned with that one. Yeah. And luckily yeah. it was only a, a toe. I mean, I know it's very painful. It could certainly affect your walking for a long time, but better than something more serious. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I kind of counted my blessings there and I, and I continued on. Um, and so that was the only mountain pass for the day. I spent the night in Lake City. And then the next day I had a cinnamon pass, which was 12,600 feet. Um, that wasn't too bad getting up. There were some parts where I had to kind of, you know, paddle with the bike because that 125 would just cut out um, at certain, you know, really steep parts, but got to the top of Cinnamon and, you know, just the sights was, was unbelievable to me. I mean, I had never seen anything quite like that before. So, so that was really great. Start going down Cinnamon. I want to drop in the bike once, you know, kind of hit my shin on a rock, not a big deal. I get into this ghost town, they call it. It's uh, Animus Forks. It's, it's an old mining town that's managed by the Bureau of Land Management now. And then I start to go up California Pass, which is what I was really, California and Ofer Pass is what I was really looking forward to the most. Um, so California is 12,960 feet, something like that. It's almost 13,000 feet. So it's got some switchbacks going up on the side that I was going up, of course, uh, east to west. Um, going up the, the switchbacks at first, it's, it's not too bad. And then the bike starts getting pinned and I don't have enough power. And so I can see the top. And at this point, I don't know exactly what my elevation was, but I essentially had the, the rest of the pass to go from the little trail that essentially led to the, the beginning of the switchbacks. And at this point, I walk the bike up a, a, a short section of the switchback. Then I get to the next turn and nothing out of the bike. So I realized at this point, based off what I could tell, I'm going to have to walk the bike up to get to the top of California Pass here. So, and this is a pretty sunny day. It's pretty hot. It's of course at an elevation I'm not used to at all. And so I, I get next to the bike and I'm just giving it throttle and I'm walking it, walking it, walking it. And this is the kind of elevation where even when you put on your brakes, the bike's still sliding. You're not, you know, the brakes aren't enough to stop the movement. And so I'd have to kind of turn the wheel to kind of lock it in the gravel so it wouldn't keep riding. I'd catch my breath after walking it for, you know, what have been maybe 15, 20 feet. Then I do it again and I get it up there. And I get to the top of the, the pass finally after, you know, what felt like forever. And, you know, through the kickstand down, finally got to take my jacket off and cool off a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I get to the top of California and uh, the view out of California was was four times what the view off of cinnamon was. I mean, it was just unreal. Um, and up there is when I, I feel kind of an, kind of an unprecedented high, if you will. I mean, knowing what I just had to do to get the bike up here, uh, already a few of these little mistakes that had went on, but then also being up here and realizing doing this has been a dream for however long. And 
all these little things that I did along the way, all the the times that I would, uh, you know, <laughs> practice the flat tires, going to get my license, buying the bike, all these things. And then I'm finally here and I'm at the top was, was um, definitely a high point of the trip. I mean, there was a lot of high points, but that one, that one really, there's no comparison to that. You mentioned that the bike is dying. Is, is this bike carbureted? The new Riverside? No. Yeah. So it is fuel injected. It just doesn't have the power. Yeah. It just, it's with me and all the gear and at that elevation, just no power. Mm, was that disappointing for you to find out that you actually didn't, wouldn't have the power to make this thing climb up with you on it? Not really. I kind of had known that it would be a dog in some, some parts. But when I realized it and I realized that I had to walk the bike up, I mean, in that, in that mindset, I was, I was like, okay, this is a, this is, you know, challenge number 38, you know, whatever. I was like, this is now a new thing I'm going to have to do to, to, to get, you know, to hopefully get to the Pacific ocean. Um, and so, no, it, it really wasn't disappointing. It was just kind of like, it was just like, you know, get off the bike, kind of rub your hands together and be like, all right, this is, this is what's next. Let's go. Now bear encounters, you mentioned bear encounters. Talk about that. Yeah. So when I was, this was in the beginning of Oregon, well, a little bit into Oregon, I started hitting uh, trees again after Idaho, uh, which is welcome for sure. Um, <laughs> but I knew, okay, you know, bear country time. So I was, I was pretty prepared. I, you know, I know how to deal with bear encounters, especially living with, in Montana, not from experience. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm well-read if you will. So right. I go through Oregon and at one point I kind of, I take a little break uh, you know, kickstand down. I would just kind of lay on the side of the uh, the hill or something on the trail. And this one part of Oregon, I'm uh, I'm having like a, a you know a drink at a granola bar, and then I start hearing this noise coming in from the background. And I kind of wish I could play it because it's really hard to describe and it's embarrassing to try to <laughs> recreate. But um, it's it's definitely coming far away. It's an echo, but it's this growling noise that I've I've never heard before. And so like, I know what a mountain lion sounds like a few other things, but I just, I could not understand what this noise was. And it was pretty intermittent and it was far enough away. But when you're in these just really desolate, Oregon was really pretty remote. Utah itself had a lot of really desolate sections, but Oregon had a lot of time in between populated areas. So when I'm out here and I'm hearing this, I'm like, yeah, I'm not loving that sound. So I get back on the bike and I start riding a little bit. I'm like, I really got to be prepared here because I'm, I'm in bear country and I'm alone. And even though the bike makes enough noise to sort of, you know, let your presence be known before you get there, there's some stories of even not motorcyclists, but one story in particular, I remember, I don't know if he's in Washington, but a guy was riding his bicycle and he turned around a corner and slammed right into a bear and the bear, uh, you know, ultimately it was fatal because the bear was essentially attacked. And so the bear is going to do what it does. And so on a little 125, I wanted to be sure that I was known. So every minute, maybe I would just beat my horn really quick. Um, and so I'm going through this one part of Oregon. It's got brush that was essentially hitting both sides of my handlebars. And I was worried about that, about, you know, possibly coming into a clearing where a bear might have its kill or something like that. And then I'm, I'm now, you know, it's, it's kind of another territorial problem. So I'm going through that, no issue there, get back on a major road, then get back onto the trail. And I'm going through one section and, and it, this almost sounds unbelievable, but I had a little bit of that gut feeling. So I kind of slowed down and I beat my horn and 20, 30 feet in front of me, um, a huge black bear runs across the trail right in front of me. And so I see that I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm like, Oh, that, yeah, that's not fun. I thought about riding on, right? I mean, that's kind of what a bear is going to do. There's, they're afraid of me. And um, and I know this, but at the time I'm like, you know what? I got to manage my risk here. I've done a lot of things that have put me into possibly trip ending territory. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get back on the road. I'm going um, to stick to actually some pavement here. And so I did that. And then the last day of riding, I was going along some of these kind of mountainside parts of the, of the tat. And I'm coming around a corner. It's pretty heavily... Um, there's a lot of brush and stuff, but you can still see through it. And I see something completely black in there. And it, it was obvious to me, it was not a, a tree stump that had been uprooted. So I come around the corner and it's another bear. Um, but he's already going up the side of the mountain and he's climbing up a good bit. And at this point I kind of took the liberty and I slowed down. I, I stopped and I just kind of watched him go up this, 
this hill and he was pretty far up and I, I knew there really wasn't any threat there by the time I saw him at the top and he got to the top and he kind of looked down at me. I looked up at him, <laughs> you know, said, you know, sorry. And, and, uh, and he went on his merry way. So Oregon had quite a bit of bears. Wow. That's uh that's, that's kind of neat. It adds to the whole fun of the trip. Um, yeah. So did you have any breakdowns other than the, the wheel nut or the axle nut rather? I had, I had kind of a self-inflicted breakdown, if you will. Um, so when I was going through Salt Lake City, um, well, actually even before Salt Lake City, downshifting became kind of difficult. I really had to kind of mash on the shifter. So I adjusted my clutch a couple of times and it, it still wasn't fixing that. So north of Salt Lake and Brigham City, I started hearing this real loud kind of clack, clicking noise, whatever you will, that is not normal to the bike. And so at this point, I'm kind of thinking, I'm having problems downshifting. I could keep going, but if I have some endemic problem that's going to lead me to have, you know, a, a serious problem with the bike, then, you know, the trip is over. And I know enough to maybe check this out and see if something's wrong. I mean, the, the Hondas are reliable as, as, you know, can be, but this is also a fairly new platform to the CT125. You know, the motor is shared with the Grom and the Monkey and the Super Cub, but this particular arrangement is different. So what I decided to do is I said, you know what, I'm going to look into it. I'm going to see what's going on um, because this is kind of just, I have to make a, a call here on what I want to do. So I pulled into the parking lot of an Ace um, Hardware. I go inside, I grab a little drain um, pan and a little funnel. And luckily I had spare oil with me, so I'd be fine there. And so I drain the oil from the bike. I try to let it cool down a little bit. And then I pop off the side case, or it's, it's not the case. It's really the clutch cover. So I pop that off. And at this point I had never done this on the bike and I didn't know what was in there, but I was like, I, I'm pretty sure this is similar to the, the old Hondas horizontals um, and I'll figure it out. So I take it off. And of course a bunch of parts come falling out mm. Um, and I'm looking around in there and I'm, I'm getting familiar with it and I can see, okay, I, I, I kind of, I know what's going on here. So I'm looking at it, I'm looking for anything obviously wrong. And I probably spent an hour just trying to get familiar with it. You know, there's no YouTube videos on this. I don't have the service manual for it. So I'm doing this relatively completely blind. And so I'm looking at it and I just, I, I just don't see anything wrong. I'm, I'm not finding anything. And so I said, all right, well, you know, I did what I can. I'm pretty much stuck here. I'm going to put it back together. I'm going to figure out what's going on. And then, so I wound up doing that and I had to get really kind of creative with my <laughs> positioning of the bike because the shift uh, spindle would push too far when I had it leaned over because all those parts that came out are part of the centrifugal clutch. And so you have to stack them together and then slide the case on over all of them. So the clutch adjuster will sit in the basket, right? Uh, and you can't do that standing up at least without, or the bike standing up without like special assembly tools, mm -hmm. which of course I didn't have those. So I went up getting all that done. I bolted it back together, refilled it up with oil, did my second checks, make sure everything was tight, um, start the bike up, take it around the parking lot and it's shifting perfectly. It's not making the clacking noise. It's doing all that. So whatever I had done, fixed it. Um, you know, I, thought I was pretty handy before. Apparently I'm so good. I don't even know what I need to do to fix it. Um, but it fixed it and I didn't have any more problems shifting for the rest of the trip. So really it just kept working. Wow. That's unusual. Yeah, it was, it was odd, but um, yeah, I'm definitely glad that that paid off. Mm -hmm. with, with the people that you met along the trail, what did they think of what you were doing? <laughs> yeah. So that was really, really a really fun part. Pretty much everywhere I stopped with little exceptions, someone walked up to me and they were like, what, Montana, did you ride that thing all the way from Montana? And I told them, well, not technically, that came from Denver, kind of told them about what I was doing. Not a lot of folks in the public know about the TAT, which I, I guess I'm a little surprised by, but then also not, it's, it is pretty, you know, yeah, pretty niche, I guess. I know it seems weird if you're, if you're into it, but if you're not, yeah. you have no reason to, to think about it. Well, yeah, you wouldn't stumble across it. Yeah, exactly. So a ton of people would come out and um, there's a, a quote that some of the CT125 folks know, and um, it's men of a certain age. Um, and it means a lot of them will come out and they will be like, you know, I used to have one of these. My grandpa had one. You know, I, I broke my arm for the first time ever riding one of the, you know, just stories on that, which I love. It's, it's a really great way, you know, because I'm 28 and I get to have this sort of mutual connection with, with, you know, frankly, a lot of folks 
much older than I, twice my age even, and connecting about these little bikes and stuff. And then they also get to see the kind of new version of it. So they ask about that. And then when they see that I have all this gear on it and I'm riding it to the coast, a lot of them, um, one called me, said, uh, you know, he said I was a glutton for punishment, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but they, they thought it was really pretty wild because they, one guy in, in Idaho, kind of when I was stopped to take a photo, he says, you know, all summer I've seen guys come through here with these big bikes loaded up with gear. What, what are you guys doing? And so I, I kind of um, told him about the tat and he was like, but now you're doing it on a moped. <laughs> and I was like, uh, sir, it's legally a motorcycle. No, I didn't say it like that, of course, but, <laughs> but you take great offense to uh, that. <laughs> this thing has no yeah. pedals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, a lot of people were really, um, really kind of, surprise, I guess I'll say is just the fact that, um, I'm on a little bike and I'm, I'm trying to do this, this, you know, this big trip. Brendan, you do realize that you will be that older guy someday, probably <laughs> when you come across and you will have, but you'll have a much better story to tell because you won't just be telling about the first time you broke your arm or, or fell off a bike or something. You're going to be telling about the time that you rode one of these across the tat. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I probably will be. And it'll be my version of um, what at least the running joke is with with uh, my generation, if you will, that, you know, our parents say that, you know, they they walked up to uh, they walked to school uphill both ways. Um, <laughs> Into the well, wind. I, yeah, I rode across <laughs> half the country on a on a tiny little motorcycle. But yes, I will. I will definitely uh, always always have a, an eye out for somebody on a on a small bike. Yeah. So overall, what was the 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 CT125 like to ride on the tat i mean i mean is this something that you would tell people hey you should go out and do this or is this a one off thing that you did what do you think so i've actually had some people ask you know would you take it again and i have said no uh, but i think that's mostly because i was able to i i did it and a lot of it was novel to me so your question about riding it is i was so Kind of proud, honestly, to to take a little Honda Horizontal because I mean I literally have a 1977 Z50 mounted on my wall. I made a I made a bracket for it, mounted <laughs> it with onto the the studs, and I actually have one mounted on the wall. Um, I think not even for me because I never rode as a kid, but I think those little bikes have led to generations um, of people that have got into riding, and so I was really proud to be able to kind of do this on one of those bikes and have that with me. Um, but I think the biggest thing is the trip overall is if everything I wanted to be, wanted it to be, and more, um, a, a lot of things, you know, physically, uh, just logically learning about all that. Uh, but also like emotionally, like things you experience and thoughts in your head really, um, it, I think it can frankly be kind of life-changing. At least it, it feels a little bit like it to me to be a little bit, you know, kind of sentimental here. But I think if someone has a an interest in doing a trip like this, I don't think they should let the size of the bike stop them. You might get uncomfortable. You might have to purchase another seat cushion like I did. Um, you might have issues finding tires for it. But there's very few things that should stop you from trying to do something like this. As long as you're, of course, comfortable with it, you feel like it's within your means. But I, I don't think um, anyone should be put off by the price or the the sheer size and power of big bikes. If if you want to do this, a little 125 will work for you. You'll just, you know, you'll probably have to work a little bit harder to get over some mountain passes. <laughs> and walk some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of walking. So if you had chosen to ride, let's say a 250, 300, 350, something like that, it's just a little bit bigger bike, but a motorcycle with, um, that would have had the power to, to keep, uh, to sit on the bike and, and ride it up those steep sections, would it have added to your trip or do you think it would have taken away? I think it would have taken away for me. Mm -hmm. I really, I, I liked the struggle that it sort of provided me. Um, I'd liked you know, the idea of kind of the challenge of doing it, um, you know, because the suspension travel on that bike is like 3.7 inches on the front, which is like half of the CRF 300, which was another bike I considered. And so when I would have some guys ride behind me, I mean, they would ask me after some sections, they were like, 
are you still in one piece? Because they would just see me getting completely <laughs> rocked and, you know, every kind of decent little pothole or something in the, in the trail, I would get kind of catapulted out of my seat. And you can't stand up on that bike. It's not natural at all to stand up on that. So you'd sit on every little section and, um, I mean, even the tiny tires on some of this, some of this really fine gravel, you know, it would just be fighting every which way to go. Um, but to me, to be able to kind of do the first, my first adventure and do it on such a challenging bike, uh, I think is, you know, it's definitely, uh, diving off the deep end. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy that I, that I did do it. It's different. Like, is that part of it? Is because you did it on something different. You're not doing it with this guy you said you talked to. It said that people were coming through all season with these big adventure bikes. You would have just been another one of those riders. Yeah, and you know there there is some part of it that may feel a little kind of vain like that, but it it, it was also really cool. Um, and I because I, I didn't expect to see a lot of other riders, but um, and tat riders. But when I would go to certain. Uh, you know, kind of the big towns like John Day, Oregon, or um, or like Salida, Colorado, and there'd be some other tat riders, and they would see me, and you kind of know that if you see another person who's obviously on a ADV route here, they're on the tat, and so I would kind of get flocked by people and be like, "Dude, no way! You you're doing it on a 125," and you're like, "Well, how long you've been riding?" And I'll be like, "Well, you know, I got my license like like two months ago. You know, I had 800 miles roughly of of travel." I would estimate under my belt of being on a motorcycle before this. And, um, it, it was also really fun with that. It was, it was a huge conversation starter. Yeah. I wasn't thinking so much of it being vain. I was just thinking of it, you know, being stepping out and doing something different. Sometimes it's nice to do something that is not the ordinary, you know, and, and that's interesting that, and these people that meet you that they're probably thinking, well, that kind of makes my look kind of lame. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, Yes, you know, even some of them, even some of the um, guys who had a lot more miles under their belt, they're like, I kind of, I this could be kind of cool, actually. Like, you know, let me get off my big, you know, Africa twin or something. Like, let me let me get back to basics and see yeah. what this would be like. So, well, yeah. Well, you mentioned struggle. That, that was the word you just said when you, you were talking about it. And there is something about struggle. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're doing any sort of uh, adventure, as, as we call them, you know, whether you're canoeing or kayaking or hiking or something like that, there's something about the struggle that adds the adventure. Now, as much as we want to sort of say, well, we don't want to add struggle, we don't want to add adversity to our, to our adventure, to our trip, just for, to sort of artificially, um, make things more difficult. But, but, but it's, but that is part of the adventure though, isn't it? That is something yeah. that if there is no struggle, what's the point? Exactly. I, knowing that you can go and choose to subject yourself to something like this sounds a little, <laughs> um, unwise, but going out there and, you know, putting yourself through this, yeah, if having it any other way could be really fun. But, you know, what do you learn from it? What do you learn about yourself? What do you learn about the world and the people you interact with? Um, yeah, the, the struggle is really, uh, to me, kind of the, the key ingredient to a trip like this. <laughs> We're speaking with Brendan O'Leary from his home in Montana. We've got some great photos from Brendan's adventure, the Tat Adventure, and it links to his social media accounts in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Wow, 
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this, because obviously without you, we wouldn't be doing this this many years down the road. It is what we do full time. And hey, it's it's built on a model of advertising and listener support. Now, we're not looking to get rich at this because we couldn't possibly get rich at this, but we do want to get by and we do need your help to get by. With that model of advertising listener support, we keep advertising down to, you know, just a few advertisers per episode. And then we look to you for support. If you like what you hear and and you think about, you know, the, the pleasure you get from it or the information you get from it, hopefully you get a lot of information and the entertainment that you get from it. Hopefully you compare that to what you pay for a sandwich or a cup of coffee or something like that and then maybe support the show. We'd, we'd really appreciate it if you consider it. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker, which are very nice um, 3M quality stickers to, for your motorcycle, your toolbox, your pannier. Um, anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on our Raw show. That's the other show that we do that comes out monthly. And um, we would really appreciate it if you consider signing up for the patron option, which is that means that you're there to support with whatever amount each month, because then we can sort of count on it that way. That makes a huge difference for us. So, so please drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support and check out those options. The other thing I would like to ask is that you, you rush to iTunes or, or wherever you're listening to the podcast and you give us a review. Hopefully it's going to be a five-star review. I'm hoping for that. I would really appreciate that. But a review helps other people find the show. So we'd really appreciate it if you'd, if you'd do those two things. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. Have a look. Uh, you know, I'm not forcing you to do it, but I'd really appreciate it if you'd look. And then also just go and, and give us a review. Give us a review at a few spots if you, if you can. But that will definitely help other people find the show. Anyway, my name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much once again for listening. And I will talk to you next week. Um, Hopefully you're going to get out there and ride your bike now. Hi, I'm Ed March from c90adventures.co.uk and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 